In a recent interview with the Los Angeles Times, ESPN president Jimmy Pitaro reiterated that he wants his network to avoid political topics, saying, quote, Without question, our data tells us our fans do not want us to cover politics, end quote. Now, for what it's worth, I, I believe him. I believe that whatever data he collected has told him that. I believe if you ask most sports fans, they'll say they don't, they don't want politics in sports. And I've seen similar feedback on our stories, whether that's in our Twitter mentions, in the comment sections of where we write, or anywhere that people can interact with, with things that we've covered that resemble anything remotely political. I even have a little bit of, of sympathy for this, this this line of thinking. Uh, I think a lot of fans look to sports as some sort of oasis and escape from politics, whether that's uh, accurate or not. And most people don't really like being preached at. But, and you probably know this since you're listening to this podcast and uh, subscribe, follow our newsletter, but sports don't exist in a vacuum apart from society. They exist in society. So those sports are going to intersect with a multitude of other political issues. And for my money, that's especially true in college sports. The institutional actors are mostly literal state institutions. They're paid with taxpayer money and how they get that money, how they spend it, how they're supported, how they interface with the rest of the state. I mean, these are explicitly political issues. I, I understand not wanting your news anchor to start talking about the Senate race in Missouri, and that when folks, including myself, uh, talk or, or tweet about issues like this, they're, they're taking a calculated risk. I understand that when I tweet about Chicago politics, I am potentially limiting the audience for my sports stories. But there are some sports stories that are just so nakedly political, but also still very much sports stories. You can't possibly write about them and stick to sports. We've had a couple of examples of this relatively recently within the college athletic space, whether that's the recent uh, uh, protests that occurred during the national anthem or the University of Missouri uh, student-athletes protesting racial discrimination, uh, those being the two most prominent examples. But they're hardly the only ones. Today, I'd like to talk about a similar event in the world of college athletics, uh, one that helped tear down really the first great mid-major dynasty in college football. It helped change a religious institution that is historically very slow to change. And, and even though the events here happened decades ago, I think they provide clues on how we might talk to or react to similar protest events today and raise some questions about how we feel about college athletics that maybe as a, as a national fandom, we haven't really settled on great answers for yet. Folks, you're listening to the Extra Points podcast. That's part of the Extra Points newsletter. I'm your host, Matt Brown, and today I'd like to talk to you about the Black 14. Most folks know college football really originated in the in Northeast. Soon it spread over to the Midwest and then the South, and around the, the early 1900s, the turn of the century, you have high-level college football teams from just about all over the country, all the way from Washington State to the Bay Area to the Deep South to the Great Lakes Midwest and, and most other places in between. The last region to really develop an elite national-grade college football team was probably the Intermountain West region. You know, the, this area, your Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, Arizona area, didn't produce a consensus All-American until 1937, you know, decades after the sport had been formally established. Uh, that was Colorado's Wizard White, who finished second in the Heisman voting that year. And you, you might know that name. Uh, not for his exploits on the football field, but by the fact that he would become a Supreme Court justice later. 
uh, teams like Utah, Utah State, Colorado, uh, a couple others would occasionally produce strong teams up until the 1950s, but generally speaking, their exploits happened outside of the national consciousness. Teams from this area weren't being thought of generally as national title contenders. They weren't in the top 10 of, of polls once those existed, you know, etc. Now, this wasn't necessarily their fault. You know, bull bids were few and far between until relatively recently, especially during the, the 40s, 50s, uh, you know, that era. Uh, there were only a couple of bowls available, and very good teams were invited to any of them. Plus, there just weren't that many people living there at the time. I mean, there's not that many people living there now, but especially in the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, 19, by 1960, the state of Utah only had 700,000 residents, right? It's about, about the size of Columbus, Ohio. Colorado just had a hair over 1.3 million, and Wyoming and Nevada combined were less than a half a million people. You know, the state of Illinois around this time was about the size of this whole region. It's hard to build a big-time college football team, and it's hard to really rev up the big hype machine that you need to be a national-scale you know, program at that point if you don't have the numbers. But eventually, one team did break through from that region, and that was Wyoming. The Cowboys went undefeated and won the Gator Bowl in uh, 1950. And then over the next several years in the 1950s, they won three different bowl games, all under different coaches, which is really, I think, unusual and speaks to how consistent this program is. Mid-major programs often fall apart after they have to replace a coach, but clearly whatever culture and advantages Wyoming had established then had continued. Uh, they finished in the AP Top 20 poll twice, which was, again, a rarity for anybody outside of that traditional power structure. But it, was, it wasn't until the 1960s, after Bob Devaney left Laramie to head to Lincoln, Nebraska to build the modern Nebraska football dynasty. It was then that the Wyoming Cowboys reached their highest heights. Lloyd Eaton took over for Devaney for the 1962 season. Uh, Eaton had spent a lot of time coaching smaller colleges in the state of Michigan. He was from South Dakota and was known throughout the sport as being a really high-level defensive coach, particularly when it came to developing defensive linemen. He was able to really get high-level production out of smaller defensive linemen, and that would become popular throughout the sport here for a little while. So he takes over in 1962. Cowboys have a couple of rebuilding seasons and then vault into the national spotlight for, uh, 1966. Cowboys could uh, come off a 10-1 season. They beat Florida State in the Sun Bowl 28-20. Uh, and then their 1967 team came in with really high expectations. They weren't quite as statistically dominant as the 66 campaign, but they had the nation's attention after winning a big bowl game. And thanks to one of the best defenses in the country, one that didn't give up more than 20 points the entire season in any one game, they earn a bid to the prestigious Sugar Bowl against LSU. Now, to say that Wyoming was kind of a curiosity by the national media, I, th I think would be a little bit of an understatement. You know, here's, here's a dispatch from this game from the Chicago Tribune that I think kind of sums up what America was thinking about Wyoming at this point. Quote, the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans probably had the least pregame enthusiasm, the law of averages situation that must arise occasionally. The Sugar Bowl participants included Wyoming, which, although unbeaten, had no substantial national following. In fact, many fans couldn't tell you if Wyoming was in South Dakota or North Carolina. Some merchants in New Orleans pondered if Wyoming money would even be good in the United States. End quote. You don't need to be on the coasts to exhibit coast bias, um, as our friends in the Chicago Tribune showed here. Uh, in this game, Wyoming jumps out to a 13-0 lead, but LSU's superior depth an injury to key Wyoming defensive, uh, defensive tackle Larry Nels and the overwhelming advantage of the hometown crowd 
uh, helps wear the Cowboys down. LSU takes a lead late in the game. Wyoming's frantic comeback attempt comes up literally just a few yards short. The Tigers win 20-13. Wyoming loses, but they capture America's respect. They finish with the lofty sixth spot in the Associated Press Bowl, something, again, pretty rare. Even today, for a team from the you know the Western Athletic Conference or a mid-major from from the Intermountain West, and they come in with with high expectations again the following season. Wyoming takes a little bit of a step back in '68. They win the WAC, but they lose three different games, each by one score. Finish seven and three. Don't play in a bowl game, but expectations were really high for 1969. Those expectations remained high after the Cowboys went off to a quick 4-0 start in the beginning of the season. They're climbing up the AP poll. They're climbing up the UPI poll. But just about every metric, they're considered a top 15 team in the country after that 4-0 start. Now, looking at Wyoming's schedule that year, they still had some pretty tough games ahead uh, all on the road against Utah and Arizona State and Houston, uh, some of the other better programs within within the area. But the biggest threat to Wyoming's undefeated season, and really their threat... Uh, the threat to Wyoming's program generally was actually going to come from a, a team that wasn't even particularly good that year. That was BYU. Now, for those who aren't familiar, let me give you some quick context about BYU. So BYU stands for Brigham Young University. That's the flagship higher education institution run by the Church of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, you might more colloquially know them as the Mormons. It's located in Provo, Utah. Uh, for the sake of disclosure, for folks who aren't aware I'm also a Mormon, although I didn't attend BYU. I'm not from the, the Mountain West area at all. I'm from Ohio. Uh, although this is part of the reason why this particular story has fascinated me, really, since I heard about it. Now, I want to speak just really broadly here for a second. I understand that uh, if you understand this theology really well, you might well actually me here a little bit. But, you know, this is technically a college football podcast. But very broadly speaking, for faithful men to completely, to completely participate in religious life within the LDS Church, they need something called the priesthood, or one of the two priesthoods. And um, these these are given to all worthy men of a certain age and allows them to participate in certain church rituals, to visit temples, and serve in particular religious leadership positions. You know, there's, there are some responsibilities that typically come to men when they turn 12. There are others that, that occur when they are older. And if you do not have the priesthood, if you don't have these privileges, you are highly limited in ways that you can participate in your congregation and serve in the the greater Mormon experience, especially if you're a male. Now, today, in 2019, any worthy male is eligible to receive the priesthood. But that wasn't the case in the 1960s. In fact, this goes all the way back to 1852. This is when the LDS Church is still relatively young. The church established a policy that restricted um, African Americans or individuals specifically that descended from Africa from receiving the priesthood, uh, regardless of their personal worthiness or, or, de- or devotion to the church. Uh, this policy drew from a, a variety of factors, including a popular theory among other white Christians or other white Protestants around that time period that African Americans bore the mark of Cain or were somehow spiritually inferior. Um, African Americans were not prohibited from joining the church or from attending BYU, but as you could probably imagine, uh, not very many of them did. According to, to Professor Darren T. Smith's book, When Race, Religion, and Sport Collide, Black Athletes at BYU and Beyond, and also from quotes from various BYU officials in 1969, uh, this university discouraged some African Americans from attending due to their, quote, limited social prospects due to the scarcity of fellow blacks in and around Provo, end quote. It's probably worth mentioning here that uh, the LDS Church also socially discouraged interracial dating at that time. 
um, like a lot of other you know conservative, mostly white institutions throughout the country. So it would it would be a difficult sell to to move someplace where you would be one of the only black people in a church that doesn't uh, fully accept you or seem to really want you around, and where you're right, your social prospects are going to be significantly limited. So. For this 1969 football season, there's only a small handful of black students, period, enrolled at BYU. It's a pretty big school at this time. None of them played on the football team. In fact, no African-American had ever played football for BYU at that point. And um, African, there hadn't been a varsity athlete who was African-American for almost two decades by 1969. Now, you know, if this was 1947 or 1930, all of this probably would have flown under the national radar. You know, BYU wasn't a nationally relevant athletic or even really academic institution at that point, And lots of institutions of higher learning were segregated, either literally or de facto. But this was 1969, and the world in general had really started to take notice. The politics of racial integration and equality and how they intersected with sports, and this was, this was something that was already exploding across the country at this point. Tommy Smith and John Carlos famously raised their fists during the Olympics just a year earlier. Um, this was a, na- a national story throughout the, throughout the country here in 1968. There was a, a July 15th edition of Newsweek cover story. It's called The Angry Black Athlete. That's, that's dropping around this time. They're interviewing coaches and individuals uh, throughout the country, you know, not just football coaches, track coaches and other sports here as well, uh, to, to, to understand the rising discontent about the the status quo. Um, Over the next couple of years, football programs and some basketball programs too all over the country, from Oregon State to Iowa to Auburn to Northwestern to a couple other institutions within the West, all of these programs would face player protests and player collective action over racial equality issues. Demonstrations on college campuses generally, you know, whether that's about the Vietnam War, whether that was about racism, whether it was a slew of other factors, these were happening almost everywhere uh, throughout the late 60s. Some of these schools were beginning to single out BYU specifically. Uh, Again, 1968, the year before here, BYU's football game against San Jose State was played in front of a nearly empty crowd after a a slew of protests. And earlier in 1969, UTEP kicked multiple individuals off their track team, including future Olympian Bob Beeman, for protesting against BYU uh, due to their religious practices at the institution. As more and more African-American student activists became aware of LDS religious practices, more protests were probably inevitable. Which brings us to Wyoming. At this point, Wyoming had more black students than black athletes than BYU, but not many more. Uh, In an interview with the Wyoming Historical Society, Willie Black, a PhD candidate who had arrived on campus from Chicago, estimated that, quote, there wasn't but about 50 blacks on campus, end quote, around this time. A uh, UPI story that would be published later this year would estimate it at about 150, but either way, it's still a very predominantly white campus. Uh, after seeing that many of the African-American students at Wyoming felt lonely and isolated, uh, Black helped start the Black Student Alliance organization at Wyoming. And because he was one of the oldest uh, students in the group, you know, he was in his mid-30s, he was a graduate student, he was asked to serve as chancellor. Black would explain that the BSA wasn't meant to be an explicitly political organization at first, but given the times and the context of what's going on, it was inevitable that it would eventually become one. In the days leading up to Wyoming's scheduled game against BYU, Mr. Black becomes aware, one way or another, of the LDS Church's priesthood doctrine, shares that with his peers within the BSA. They're obviously not thrilled about it, and the group decides to protest. 
So on the Wednesday before this game, Black delivers a statement titled, quote, why we must protest, end quote, to the UW administration. This goes to the university president, the athletic director, and a few others. And it calls for the university and other schools within the WAC, the Western Athletic Conference, to stop hosting BYU and for all people of goodwill to protest the church's policies. The organization says it's going to stage a nonviolent protest on the Saturday of the game. There are 14 African-American members of Wyoming's football team that obviously couldn't attend the protest, but their feelings about uh, BYU and their and the LDS's church's doctrine towards African-Americans was, was known, uh, and they wanted to make those feelings known. According to The Black 14, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Wyoming Football, which is by Ryan Thorburn, a former reporter for the Boulder Camera, uh, many of the players were upset not just over the religious doctrine for BYU sponsoring institution, but about BYU football specifically. They were upset over racial slurs and cheap shots from their games against the Cougars you know, over the previous meetings. So on Thursday, Eaton warned Joe Williams, one of the team's captains, that team rules prohibited participation in literally any sort of campus protest and wanted him to relay that information uh, back to his black teammates. On Friday, the day before the game, those 14 players decided to don black armbands and ask to meet with Coach Eaton. Despite those team rules, they hoped to figure out some way that they could protest, either by wearing armbands or, or perhaps by doing something else. This, this meeting was meant to be the starting point of a conversation. As, as Joe Williams would later tell Sports Illustrated, quote, We knew about the rule against protest, and we went to him on that Friday morning only to see if we couldn't work something out. We felt very deeply about this, but we just wanted to talk to him. We wanted to see if we could wear black armbands in that game or black socks or black X's on our helmets. And if he had said no, we had already agreed that we would be willing to protest with nothing but our black skins. End quote. Eaton was already known to his players as a really harsh disciplinarian and not somebody necessarily with the most enlightened racial views. One of the students, an offensive lineman named Mel Hamilton, had previously been a member of Wyoming's football team back in 1966. Back then, he had informed school officials that he was planning on marrying a white woman and wanted the paperwork to transition into married housing. Wyoming's athletic director said that was just fine and directed him to Eaton. But when when Hamilton asked Eaton to process that paperwork, uh, Eaton refused, saying, no way, Mel, that's not going to happen. Uh, when, when pressed, when Hamilton said, what do you mean? Eaton said, I can't let you marry this girl in Wyoming's money. It's the people of Wyoming's money, especially the people of Casper. They won't allow me to let you do this. Um, there's, there's a recounting of this both with the Wyoming Historical Society interviews and also in the, the Black 14 book. So then Hamilton leaves the program. He enlists in the Army, only to eventually find his way back on campus. But Hamilton probably would have had an inkling of what might have happened next. The rest of his teammates, however, did not. Coach Eaton did not negotiate. He did not hear his players out. There was no meeting of the minds. This wasn't a conversation. According to multiple player accounts, Eaton said, quote, Gentlemen, you can save time and breath. As of now, you're off the football team. End quote. Now, Eaton would claim in some other interviews that he gave the players a chance to speak first, but in every player account that I read, in multiple outlets and in the book, all the players strongly denied it. Uh, a woman named Anne-Marie Waffle, a passerby who was near the area during this, when this conversation happened, would later tell an interviewer that Eaton responded with, quote, pretty belligerent talk, and, uh, quote, I, would feel, I felt embarrassed for the young men hearing this tirade, end quote. 
according to multiple player accounts of the meeting, Eaton said that if the players uh, felt that Wyoming was unsatisfactory, they should go to Morgan State or Grambling instead. Those are HBCUs. Uh, and that the players are throwing away their life, throwing away their chance to avoid relief or the ghetto. It's probably worth mentioning here that most members of the Black 14 didn't actually come from any upbringing that would be described as the ghetto. Um, after that hurtful and racially charged dressing down, the players left, no longer a part of the football program. The names of the 14 individuals who are part of this were uh, Earl Lee, John Griffin, Willie Hysaw, Don Meadows, Ivy Moore, Tony Gibson, Jerome Barry, Joe Williams, Mel Hamilton, Jim Isaac, Tony McGee, Ted Williams, Lionel Grimes, and Ron Hill. News of their dismissal very quickly spread through campus, to the BSA, to other student organizations, everywhere. And university officials tried to defuse the situation very quickly. That afternoon, the players met with university president William Carlson, athletic director Reggie Kobe, and various other student leaders. But despite their efforts to bring Eaton into those conversations, he refused. Uh, he was reportedly at a movie that night with his players. Uh, the, the players, the Black 14 players and coaches continued to meet later in the night, other members of the coaching staff, uh, and also included uh, special sessions involving university trustees and Wyoming Governor Stan Hathaway, who drove in through a snowstorm to get to campus to discuss everything. Um, the players at one point were optimistic some sort of compromise might be able to be reached, but ultimately the administration refused to overrule their wildly popular head coach, so they couldn't reach a compromise. While the school did not suspend the players' scholarships so they could still remain on campus. They did publicly affirm that the players were off the team and would not play in any game in 1969. They framed the entire event as a disciplinary issue and they declined to overrule the coach. Now, just from a football perspective, these suspensions are pretty significant, right? Wyoming wasn't an especially deep team to begin with, and they just lost six starters and 14 players, including their leading wideout, their best return man, one of their best offensive linemen, multiple strong running backs and defensive backs, and Tony McGee, a, a playmaking explosive defensive end who was really starting to come into his own in his career, and then would, the guy that would later play in the Super Bowl after a productive NFL career. Even today, with 85 scholarships, a, a big Power 5 team, would struggle if they lost 14 players in their rotation or six starters. Wyoming wasn't one of those. However, losing all those players didn't matter against BYU that day. The quote, the Wyoming guys were playing for a cause. They were intense and ferocious, and so was the crowd, end quote. Recalled BYU's Mel Olson, uh, speaking to the Salt Lake Tribune many years later. At this point, a lot of BYU players expected protests and trouble when they went on the road, and they knew that their game against Wyoming was going to be especially emotionally charged. Said Mark Lyons, BYU's quarterback at the time, quote, it was pretty unnerving for, for all of us. Several wives and girlfriends made the trip to Laramie, and I still remember Coach Hudspeth, BYU's head coach at the time, telling them, I wish she hadn't come, end quote. Despite playing shorthanded, Wyoming destroyed BYU that day, winning 40-7 in front of a crowd of nearly 15,000 fans. BYU turned the ball over five times, many of those within their own territory, ran for just 25 yards, and generally played a, a sloppy game even for their standards. Some of the suspended Wyoming players will actually watch the game from the student section, while both sides of the stadium reportedly chanted, We love Eaton. In the UPI game story after the game, Eaton would say, quote, this victory was the most satisfying one I've ever had in coaching, end quote. The response back on Wyoming's campus about the whole affair was mixed. 
Editorials and local newspapers showed plenty of support for Eden, and but Wyoming's faculty senate voted to condemn the suspension, with one professor, English professor Ken Craven, uh, threatening to resign if the players were not reinstated. For what it's worth, then the Touchdown Club of Casper, after hearing about this, reportedly offered to raise money to get Craven and other protesting academics out of the state. You know, clearly there's a town-gown dynamic here, uh, as you would probably expect. Four members of four black members of Wyoming's track team quit, then left the university. The Wyoming student paper also came out in front of the players, and the editor of the paper at the time, Phil White, ended up resigning. Um, but, you know, also, according to Sports Illustrated, a state lawmaker said that the school might face budget problems if Eaton backed down or the university didn't, didn't properly support it. So you have a, a big dynamic here between some academics and student groups supporting the players and a whole lot of other people in Wyoming not. The players also tried to sue to regain their spots on the team and bringing in some help from the NAACP, but that case ultimately failed. The response at BYU was probably what you would have expected. Cougar coach Tommy Hudspeth didn't criticize Wyoming, quote, again, quoted later in the Salt Lake Tribune as saying, Lloyd Eaton, out of respect for us, didn't suit up his black players that day. Lloyd was a great gentleman and a great supporter of the conference, end quote. I've read a lot of newspaper coverage of the, the, the weeks surrounding the Black 14 around Utah. And I keep coming back to this one editorial I read in the Provo Daily Herald. It's dated October 23rd, 1969. It's by a fellow named Joe Watts, if you want to look it up. It's called Questions, Questions, Decide the Answers. You know, I, I'm reading a little bit of Watts' coverage throughout this event. I think it's pretty clear he's not sympathetic to critics of the local university. But a lot of the questions here struck me as just how easily they could be rewritten and shared today on a message board or on Twitter or maybe a conservative-leaning newspaper. The whole column is just really a series of questions. It reads like a, like a big tweet storm, right, 1969. But I want to read a couple of these just so you can get an idea for what he was thinking, which I don't think was out of line with the thinking of many people within Utah County at the time. Uh, Watts writes, Can a university hope to judge when another school discriminates? Should one WAC university withdraw from the conference because it assumes another school discriminates, even when its own shirts aren't clean? If BYU were to leave the WAC, would that solve the Negro problems within the WAC? What about other schools with racial problems that have no connection with BYU? If BYU was not in the WAC, would individuals at those schools find another target, such as fraternities? Would uh, Because the church doesn't allow the Negro to hold the priesthood and because it frowns on interracial marriage, should BYU stay away from recruiting Negro athletes? In the recent Sports Illustrated Expo... In a recent SI expose of the Negro athlete, the biggest complaint around the nation was that they felt like they were being used. Would it be using or exploiting him to try to convince him to come to BYU or even pay him to come to BYU? End quote. Other editorials from BYU's Daily Universe, their own newspaper, to others in Utah, um, asked a maybe familiar question today. Was Wyoming, in fact, the real racists? Were they the really discriminatory party? Because they were going after somebody else's religion. BYU wasn't coming and telling anybody at Wyoming what they should be doing. And were the, were the critics at other WAC institutions really looking out for the best interest of African Americans, given that almost all of them were almost as heavily white as BYU was? It's not hard to imagine a similar column being written about liberty right now, or maybe some other highly conservative institution. Not saying that those columns would be right, just that they would exist. Um, going back to football, BYU would actually win their next four games, lose to Utah, which is pretty common around this time, and finish a relatively pedestrian 6-4 and four on the season. They weren't a national football story. They finished third in the WAC, ultimately relatively forgettable. 
San Jose State, Wyoming's next opponent that season, elected to wear multicolored armbands in support of the Black 14. The Cowboys won that game 16-7, but then, completely robbed of their roster depth and with all kinds of emotional issues going on in the background, lost their next four games, including a completely embarrassing season-ending blowout by Houston, 41-14. At that point, the, the idea of Wyoming being a nationally relevant, high-level football team was extinguished. So what happened after that? Things never really got better on the field for Wyoming football. Black athletes completely shunned playing for Eaton after, the, after everything that happened in public, and recruiting took a nosedive. The wheels really completely fell off the entire program. Wyoming went 1-9 in 1970, and Eaton was fired, reassigned to a different job within the department. Wyoming would have just one winning season over the next decade, wouldn't finish in the AP poll at all until 1996. They haven't been ranked at all since 1998, and their prospects of ever replicating their success in the 50s and 60s seem pretty remote. If you're, I'm 32. If you're a little bit younger than me, you probably don't ever remember Wyoming being ranked at all. You probably don't remember Wyoming outside of maybe a few of the Joe Tiller era games being a national anything. They haven't been bad. They've just been irrelevant. Things did change quite a bit at BYU. Worried about future protests, WAC leaders entertained the idea kicking BYU completely out of the league, according to various newspaper reports, along with the menu of other possibilities before ultimately deciding against it. Stanford would straight up refuse to schedule BYU, and student groups at other Western programs would continue to call for protests and demonstrations. Some of them, including one with Colorado State, would get a little bit violent. After the 1969 season, the school announced that they would renew efforts to recruit black students and athletes, while adding, again, that African-American students were never specifically prohibited from attending. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here from an AP story from 1969. Quote, uh, Brigham Young University, buffeted by Rachel, racial buffeted by racial protest from the outside, has vowed renewed effort to include black athletes among its 2,500 students. Excuse me, 25,000 students. Physical education dean Milton F. Uh, Hartsvigan said coaches and scouts sent out this week would be especially watchful for Negroes willing to play for the church, Mormon church-oriented school. He stresses, as have other BYU officials, that Negroes have always been welcome at the school, and the recruiting drive is an effort to make that policy more widely known. We want everyone to know our doors are open. We said it, and we mean it. End quote. The next season, BYU added defensive back Ronnie Knight to the roster, who would be their first African-American player. The roster would very slowly become more diverse late into the 1970s. Uh, and in 1978, the church would end their discriminatory priesthood ban, opening those privileges up to all men. And years later, as kind of a, an ironic end to this story, Mel Hamilton's son, you know, remember Mel Hamilton was one of the members of the Black 14, his son Malik would become Mormon himself and work as a chef at BYU. Wyoming wasn't the only school to face a recruiting backlash over taking a really hard-line approach to discipline over racial equality protests. Other programs like Oregon State and Iowa around this era also faced pushback that took, really, took some time for them to recover from. Wyoming suffered from especially bad timing, though. You know, part of the reason that they were able to be successful uh, during this era is because they were able to say very credibly, if you come here, you can be prepared for a spot in the NFL. The national television opportunities are rare. We usually win our conference. We can get to a bowl game. You'll be on TV. And you can't get that everywhere, even if you go to a much bigger conference. Uh, with Eaton gone, the university lost some of their recruiting connections within the Midwest, which is a place where they got a lot of players. And then almost immediately, they were supplanted by Arizona State as the dominant program within the WAC. 
Arizona State actually had heights that surpassed what Wyoming had been able to do and were able to muscle their way into the Pac-8, which would become the Pac-10. Wyoming uh, was never able to recover. And by the time that the school actually got better, the college football landscape had changed, making it almost impossible for a school in such a rural area to really climb back and recruit and compete at the level it was before. Today, BYU is still very much a PWI, or a predominantly white institution. They're not the only one. I mean, that's that's a lot of R1 institutions. And Provo, depending on what metric you want to use, is still one of the least diverse cities in the country. A lot of things have changed since the 1960s. The LDS Church is exponentially more global, substantially more diverse. And BYU's coaching staff right now for football is actually one of the most diverse in FBS, um, much more so than a lot of other big-name programs outside the South. Um, but the school, as an institution, still struggles to recruit African-Americans who are not LDS, particularly athletes, and particularly if they have uh, the ability to go to other big-name schools. The aftermath of this policy and how it's impacted the demographics of the church and the region plays at least a small part in that, now, a lot, along with a lot of other social issues that intersect with the church. Based on his limited interviews, and again from the, the Ryan Thorburn's book, The Black 14, it appeared Eaton looked back on this whole affair with quite a bit of bitterness. His coaching career pretty much tanked, and he ended up working in NFL scouting departments until his retirement. He was convinced that the Black 14 protests were the result of being targeted by national out-of-state groups and repeatedly said that he has absolutely no regrets about how he handled anything. He was a very stubborn man, uh, not a whole lot of introspection, I think, about, about what happened. Only three members of the Black 14 would return to Wyoming. Only a few were drafted. Only one would have a really meaningful NFL career. And even though few of them were the equivalent to blue chip recruits back then, it's, it's kind of tough to say what their professional prospects would have been like without the negative press, without the interruption of their football careers. But I think no matter what, it's pretty clear to say what this group sacrificed significantly. They were really done wrong by the university. If any consolation, most of them achieved a lot of professional success outside of football. More than anything, this incident really showed the power that college football players had, even in the era before major television contracts. Early in 1969, there's a com compelling argument that Eaton was the most powerful man in the state, easily the most popular man, much more so than the governor or the president of the university. But this protest and the school's unfortunate response to that protest eventually brought the entire operation crashing down. I think this event is also a useful data point and America's shifting a little bit away from this perception that the college football coach needs to be an all-powerful figure with ironclad dominance and discipline over every facet of players' lives, right? The, you, you think back at the Bear Bryant, Junction Boys, you know, kind of archetype of college football coaches. And while that still exists in, in large, large sense in how we, we think about them, I, I think that this was one of the events that showed that to be really successful after the late 1960s, a coach is going to need to allow some degree of self-expression, some degree of self-awareness and understanding beyond his own background. Um, this was all would have been completely unthinkable in the early 1960s. Like, coach, imagine Cardell Jones playing for Lloyd Eaton. Wouldn't have worked. He would have hated him. Now, there's been other protests and demonstrations since then, both in this era, the late 60s, early 70s, and throughout history. But I think the Black 14 really provides a powerful example how a school shouldn't handle things. The most, politically, pol the most politically expedient way isn't always the best way, and what might seem easy now might have significant repercussions later on. What, Wyoming's decisions impacted multiple schools here for, for years and years to come, and here's hoping that the next story has a happier ending for everybody. 
Friends, if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll probably enjoy the rest of the Extra Points newsletter, which I'm guessing you're subscribed to. But if you're not, you can subscribe to it for free at mattbrown.substack.com. Extra Points publishes twice a week. It covers a lot of the off-the-field issues, whether that's business or politics or money or demographic changes or history. All of these things that shape what college football looks like now. You can also find me at Twitter at MattSBN or via email at matt.brown at sbnation.com. If you're interested in further reading about this, I'll throw in a couple of links uh, to some books and some of the news articles here in the post. The Wyoming Historical Society has a really great online exhibit about everything if, if you're interested. Thanks for listening, everybody.